On the virtual Bible study tonight, we were going to look at some listener-submitted questions, and they're very interesting. Yeah, we've got some really good questions. Uh, we like these kind of programs where we put together a bunch of questions that have been submitted by our listeners, and they cover a lot of different topics, but they're all really interesting, and we're going to have to go pretty quick, Jacob, to get through them all. And we're going to take some listener-submitted answers yes, to these questions. We're going to we're going to rely heavily on answers that have already been submitted. We're looking for you to send in your answer or talk to us in the chat room. It's going to be a good discussion. The Virtual Bible Study starts right now. It's time for this week's edition of the Virtual Bible Study. The Virtual Bible Study is a live, Internet-only call-in program dedicated to the honest study and discussion of God's Word. Do you have a question about something in the Bible? Or are you simply interested in learning more about the Scriptures? If so, we hope you'll stay tuned tonight as we look into the pages of God's Word. The Virtual Bible Study is brought to you this time each week by the College View Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. You can participate in the discussion tonight by calling 931 381-4567 or by emailing your questions or comments from collegeview.com. We hope you'll take out your Bibles and study along with us as we begin an exciting study of God's Word on this edition of the Virtual Bible Study. And this is the Virtual Bible Study for Thursday, December 12th, 2019. Thank you for joining us on the program tonight. My name is Jacob Gwynn. My father, Greg Gwynn, is here. Hello, Dad. Jacob, great. Great to be with you. Kyle's behind the controls. Kyle, welcome. Good to be here. Good to be with you. And uh, we're glad that you're listening, uh, whether you're listening to us live or in the archive version. Spoke with someone not too long ago. That they said, you know, it's just easier to listen in the archive. We understand that. We still like to hear from you if you're listening in the archive version. Questions at collegeview.com. Is and we really crave use. audience participation, too. So if you can if you can't listen, we appreciate that, yeah, yeah. especially. And uh, while you're listening live tonight, sign in the chat room or give us a call at 877-381-4567. We'd love to hear from you. Tonight on the program, as we talk about listener-submitted questions, very interested, interesting ones that we've got tonight. Um, but I think you've got a couple things you want to mention before we get started. I want to mention that we do have our Bible reading calendars now printed, and we'll print as many as we need. So if you'd like one of our, and we've been doing this for a number of years, 12 or 13 years probably or more, uh, if you'd like a copy of uh, a hard printed copy of our Bible reading calendar, uh, send us your U.S. mail, snail mail address, and we'll get one in the mail to you. Now, we will later post that to our website so you can access it when you're away. From, if you don't have your printed copy uh, before you, you can get it on the website. And we'll have a copy of it on there. Uh, or we could also send you, we could send you an electronic version of it, or you could print, uh, for yourself or give to others. So just tell us what you want yep. and we'll try to accommodate you with our, uh, daily Bible reading calendar for 2020. All right. Also, I have finally got my act together and ordered oval bumper stickers. They oh, yeah. should be here within days. And I've got some pending requests for those. And as soon as they come in, I'll get them sent out. But if you'd like to have one of those, it sort of makes you look like you ran a marathon or a half marathon. You know, yeah. if you stick that on the back, you want, yeah. and people will be looking to see what kind of runner you are. And then, oh, virtual Bible study. What is so, that? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. uh, All right. It's sort of like, yeah, it's sort of a trick, trick play there. Yeah. Switch. Yeah. Switching bait and switch. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right. So uh, if you want if you want some of those, let us know too. We'll try to get those out to you. Now those Bible reading calendars. Um, give us the format there on those again. They're uh, they're not chronological. No, uh, I mean they are chronological, not uh, as you find your the scriptures in your Bible. Yeah, it's not. You just don't read cover to cover in your printed Bible, but it actually does try to put everything in sort of in chronological order, the historical books with with the and the prophets that would tie into that specific time or are interspaced. It tries to really give you a good chronological look at the whole Bible. There's Old Testament readings every day and New Testament readings every day. Not uh, every day. Five, five days. days of, it's, that's what I really like about this schedule. It's a five day a week uh, reading schedule. So five out of seven days. If you get a little behind, you got a couple of days a week to catch up. It really works well. This is the same. Many of our listeners have seen this in the past copies or versions. It's the same reading schedule. It's just updated to. And by the way, this is a, 2020 is a really crazy calendar year. Uh, it's a, it's a leap year. 2020 is a leap year, but but it didn't line up with any of the past printings. I had to redo it all because I couldn't find any past calendar that was like 2020 calendar. 
All right. And the, the, that New Testament reading is one chapter a day, five days a week. Pretty easy Pretty to easy. keep up with the New Testament. You know, take that, uh, get that calendar and use that maybe for like a family devotional every night before everybody goes yeah. to bed. There one chapter, and you'll get the whole family through the New Testament in the, in the year. So that's a good, uh, a good way to use that calendar. Uh, how do I get one? I send you an email. Send an email to questions. With a credit at- card. No, no charge. No credit card. Questions, uh, send an email to questions at collegeview.com. Tell me what you want and how you want it. If you want a hard printed copy, you've got to give me your U.S. mail address. And it's all free of charge. All free. And you're not going to use their email address or their home address for any uh, nefarious purposes. We're not selling our database. Okay. All, no. right. okay. all right. On to our questions tonight. All right. So we're not going to read all these ahead of time because some of them are rather lengthy. We'll just take them one at a time. And the first one says... Uh, this is what I sent out earlier today to our update list. Please comment on 1 John five sixteen and 17 uh, concerning the sin unto death. What sin does not lead to death? Which I think the listener was asking, well, a sin unto death, any sin is a sin unto death so potentially. So I'm sort of confused here. Yeah. yeah. Let okay. me read this a little more thoroughly from the actual email. Uh, it says, I was wondering if you had a, a sermon or a virtual Bible study episode relating to these verses, 1 John five sixteen seventeen. 17. Obviously, all sin is unrighteousness and a separation from God. But I struggle to understand this verse and keep it in context with other scripture. John says it's a brother. So we are speaking of a fellow Christian. What sin does not lead to death? My best understanding is that sometimes we as Christians can do things that hurt or offend. And perhaps we don't realize other times we uh, and others may in a case like that. Others may pray to God for us to forgive us and help us. But if we are engaged in intentional defiant sin that we uh, that we can't pray to God to forgive them of that, they have to repent and ask God's forgiveness themselves. I think that's right. I think I think our, our the the questioner is on the right track. Let's read those verses. First John five uh, sixteen and seventeen. If any man see his brother sin a sin which is not unto death. He shall ask, and he shall give him life for them that sin not unto death. There is a sin unto death. I do not say that he shall pray for it. All righteousness, all unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not unto death. All right. I think our listeners on track with the additional comments that they supplied. And I actually think that the sin unto death is simply a sin that a person will not repent of. And so I'm engaged in a sin. I'm aware of the sin. I'm unwilling to cease the sin, to repent of the sin. Uh, Therefore, there's no reason for you to pray for me when I'm in that circumstance. Your prayers would be ineffective. In fact, you're actually told don't do it. Don't pray for me if I'm continuing in a sin that I refuse to repent of. Uh, I, I really think that that's the case. Uh, other than that, I think that I think that it's possible to be forgiven of, of sin. So the sin unto death could be, I'm just a gossip, and I won't quit gossiping. As long as I won't quit gossiping, that sin can is a help. sin to death. Or I'm a liar, and I won't quit lying. Lying will be a sin unto death because I won't repent of it. It could be adultery. I won't repent of adultery. Therefore, that adultery is going to be a sin unto death. Any sin I won't repent of becomes a sin unto death. And and, and the scary thing is here that you can, you can get to a point with sin where you can't repent. You get you get sucked into it so hard, your, call, your heart is so calloused and hardened that you can be bombarded with the truths of the gospel, the truths about God's love and, and desire for your repentance. And you get to a point where you can't respond to that. And that's a scary thing. Yeah. Uh, where you, you've gone so far. Well, the scripture even talks about having your conscience seared yeah. with a hot iron. Says, uh, the conscience, I mean, the, the scripture uses the expression, uh, past feeling. Yeah. You can get past feeling. God gives you over to a reprobate mind. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. So that's some scary stuff there. And, and at that point, God says, for the faithful to stop even praying for your repentance. Yeah, well, certainly don't pray that you should or be, be that you, you, there's yeah. no use praying that such a person be forgiven in that situation. When you won't repent, you can't be forgiven. Now, this is sometimes confused with, and our listener didn't have this confusion, uh, but I know people who, who do think that this maybe connects to Mark 3, verse 28 where Jesus said, Verily I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men, and blasphemy 
with wherewith soever they shall blaspheme, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Now, some people have tried to tie the sin unto death to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said, uh, you're not going to be forgiven of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I, I don't think they are. I don't think they're talking about the same thing. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, in, in the context in which Jesus made that statement, Jesus had just been performing miraculous deeds. And, and some of his uh, adversaries among the scribes and Pharisees said he was doing it by the power of Beelzebub. So basically, they were denying the power by which Jesus was doing miracles thus blaspheming the Holy Spirit that was empowering him to do those miracles. Now, think about it. If you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, if you deny the evidence that God is revealing himself by his Spirit, then you can't be forgiven. In other words, I deny the Holy Spirit. I deny that this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit. I I, I deny the inspiration of the Bible by the Holy Spirit. Okay. Then I have just discarded the the very means by which I could be forgiven. I'll never be forgiven as long as I reject the work of the Holy Spirit in this world, in particular in revealing God's truth to mankind. As long as I reject that, blaspheming the work of the Holy Spirit, I can't be forgiven. There's no means by which I could be forgiven. I think that's what Jesus was talking about when he said that. I don't think that's the same thing in First John 5. Wait a minute. It would be the same thing. Because that's a sin that they're not going to repent. Well, yeah, in that sense, but, but I don't. But it's, th- not, I, it's not an unpardonable sin, like yeah, you, you, you yeah. some that would suggest. Yeah, I, I, I suppose that it could be included in the, the sin I won't repent of. Right. But I don't think that's. The, I don't think the two passages as, as, are synonymous. No, but as long as I have a hardened heart against the word, then yeah. there's no hope right, for me. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think right. that's right. Okay. We got right. some listener or some uh, email responses here. Kent said the Lord will forgive every sin of whatever nature of which fallen brethren repent and confess. Acts 8:32, John 1 verse 8. I mean, sorry, 1 John 1 verse 8. Uh, actually, I think it's First John one verse nine. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So, uh, and He says, and number two, there is, however, a sin which the Lord will not forgive. First John chapter five verse sixteen. Therefore, the sin which the Lord will not forgive is any sin, is a sin, any sin, or all sin of which fallen brethren will not repent and confess. Uh, yeah, I agree. Um, Dwight uh, didn't answer did, that one. Didn't respond to that and uh, Mohan. It said, Mohan says it may refer to the works of the flesh mentioned in Galatians five. Where someone refuses to repent of one of those sins and God gives them over to a reprobate mind. Along these lines, see if you can comment on this program or another. When exactly someone goes from light to darkness after obeying the gospel. Some in the Church of Christ believe that when you fall into any sin, such as deliberately running a red light, you go immediately from light into darkness until confessing and repenting. If there is not time to do so, one goes to hell. Others believe as long as you are walking in the light as a disciple, when you fall into sin and refuse to confess and repent of the sin... That is when you go into darkness, uh, not like every time you sin. Um, so uh, Mohan is asking a separate question. I want to save his question for another time because that's not what we put out there today. Okay. This is the question that was debated several years ago. It was debated intensely by some of our brethren, the question of continuous cleansing. Or are we are we damned to hell the instant we sin until we can know and confess and repent? Uh We'll try to comment on that in another episode because uh, uh, that's not exactly what we put out to our listeners okay. today. It's a great question, Mohan. I think it's a great question. But he basically agrees with us. Uh, the sin unto death is a sin that you refuse to repent of. Okay. All right. Good responses from our listeners. If you've got any comments you'd like to add, uh, so send them in the chat room. Kevin's listening in Tampa, Florida tonight. Tampa, Tampa. Kevin really moves around, doesn't he? He is, yeah. He, he is, is on the go. Good thing we've got the World Wide Web. Uh, that, that, that way we can keep up with Kevin. Hang on a minute. I got an email uh, that addresses this question. Daniel says all sin leads to death, according to Romans six twenty three, Luke thirteen three through five. All who do not repent shall perish. However, there does there does seem to be a distinction in First John five sixteen and seventeen, or perhaps the person is not willing or maybe even no longer able to change, or maybe I'm missing it, but it seems clear from other passages that we can be forgiven of all sin, First John chapter 1, verse 7 and following. So he's online with, uh, I think, on track with us. 
that if we're willing to repent, there's no sin we can't be forgiven of. All right. Time for a break. When we get back, the next question. The next question is going to be about somebody who is baptized when they're very young. Uh, and then maybe they decide later they don't want to follow that course. Uh, well, well, I think it's a really interesting question. Hang on. What about someone baptized real young? And the listener asks, is my baptism binding? Kind of an interesting question. We'll try to talk about that. Don't go anywhere. The Virtual Bible Study continues with interesting listener questions right after this. You won't want to miss what we talk about next. The discussion continues right after these important messages. Do you remember when elders, deacons, preachers, and Bible class teachers and all church members had strong commitment to the Word? Do you recall when you can always count on book, chapter, and verse preaching from the pulpit? Can you think back to a time when Christians were known as people of the book because they knew their Bible so well? We're still trying to be a church like the church you read about in the Bible. And we're still doing the same things you remember from way back when. Are you longing for a return to the way things used to be? Come and visit. See for yourself. Here's some quotes worth pondering. An old man was asked what had robbed him of joy the most in his lifetime. He replied, things that never happened. Life without God's guidance is like a giant jigsaw puzzle in which you must put all the pieces together correctly while blindfolded. Man, wish I'd said that. Quit checking your email. The commercials are over and the virtual Bible study is ready to roll. Take it away, guys. Back on the program tonight as we look at listener questions uh, that have been submitted to us. Uh, they're signing in the chat room tonight, um, uh, so uh, if you want to sign in there, Kevin's asking for a roll call where everyone's listening from tonight. Uh, it's interesting to know where all our, our study group is tonight around uh, the world. Okay, number two tonight for our questions submitted by listeners. Let's see here. I'm trying to print off uh, an email. Am I on the right place? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, we got them coming okay. here. All right, here we go. All right. All right. Um, so the second question, I, I'm going to read from the email itself. I summarized it in the questions that I sent out today. But here's the question. I was very young when I obeyed the gospel, so my baptism isn't binding. I was less than even in my teenage years when I was baptized. Now I feel that I wasn't old enough to make an adult lifelong decision when I was baptized. As an adult, I now feel my baptism wouldn't be binding to me as I couldn't fully understand the commitment I was making. I have now been exposed to other religious doctrines and now have many questions. This has allowed me to not be faithful to the Lord in my attendance or how I live my life. Can one be excused of their baptism due to youth? There's some really unusual concepts expressed there in the way that that's worded. Um, Now, a couple things. First, I do believe that when we are baptized, we need to know what we're doing. Absolutely. Uh, In Romans chapter 6, the first verses of Romans chapter 6 talk about baptism. Verse 3, know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death. So in the context of Romans chapter 6, baptism is specifically in the context. And then in verse 17, Paul says, God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. I think that's the really important expression there, obeyed from the heart. So, you know, what about a person that didn't, what if we force somebody? What if we, here's Kyle and you and me, and we go out on the street tonight and we just grab a guy. We're bigger than he is, and the three of us together can surely manhandle this guy. We drag him in here to the church building and we dunk him in the baptistry. Is his baptism effective? No, nope, absolutely, absolutely not. not. Because he didn't obey from the heart. It's the right physical act. He did the, the the act was physically proper, but he didn't obey from the heart. The baptism is ineffective. Obeying yes. from the heart. So you can't have it. It can't be something that you do without understanding. It can't be something that's done to you. It needs to be something that you do from the heart. And for that reason, I do agree that it's possible that a person could be too young to really understand and obey from the heart. I think there is the possibility. Uh, would would we think that a, with a child who was three years old, for instance, could be baptized and understand, be obeying from the heart? Uh, all of us would agree three is way too young. Uh, what about seven? What about nine? What about 10 or 12, 13 or 15? What is, and this is how we've always referred to it, what is the age of accountability? At what point does a person realize the seriousness of sin, 
understand their need for salvation, understand the consequences of their sin, their need for salvation, and make a commitment. Because actually, in being baptized, there you are making a commitment. You're not just receiving a benefit. You're also making a commitment to the Lord. We're getting married to the Lord, right? Yeah. And so the the idea of that, that, that you could be too young, is certainly a concern. Uh, I'll just put it that way. It's certainly something to be considered. You could be so young that you might not be making a a really uh, informed decision to be baptized. Okay. okay. All right. Now, the part of this that I think is curious uh, is my baptism isn't binding, which is little, I was young when I obeyed the gospel. So my baptism isn't binding. Uh I, I would never say it that way, although I I guess I agree that that when you when you are properly baptized, you are making a commitment to the Lord. Uh, you're you're uh, you're accepting his blessings and you're committing yourself to, uh, you know, Jesus said, unless a man deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. You know, so you are making a commitment to deny self and serve the Lord. So I don't know. I would I w- would much prefer the the terminology. My baptism is not a, effectual because I didn't know what I was doing. Lots of people feel that way. I don't know. I don't know how many people through the years have come to me and said, "I, I I'm not sure I understood fully the, what I was doing when I was baptized. I think I should be baptized again." And I always say, "Man, why not? What's I mean? If you're concerned about it, it's an easy thing to be baptized." And take away all doubt or concern. Plenty of people have had the concern that they maybe didn't understand, maybe were too young. But this person says, I was too young, therefore I don't have to do what I promised to do, which is a wrong reaction. You should say, I was too young and and my sins weren't for, you know, baptism didn't do what I want it to do. I want baptism to... Forgive me of my past sins and put me into a covenant relationship with the Lord and give me the hope of heaven and eternity. And I'm not sure my baptism was effective to those ends, and therefore I should be baptized again. But this guy, this the way this is where it's like the person saying, well, I'm off the hook. Well, it's almost like there's two different laws or expectations, one for the non-Christian, one for the Christian. And the yeah. fact of the matter is... God has the same requirements for us all, and that is to submit to him and be obedient. So just because you may not be a Christian now, even though you were baptized, you're still accountable to God. Yeah. And you need to rectify that. This is what I think is curious. This person almost seems to think, look, I'm I'm not obligated. I'm free. I'm off the hook. Instead of saying, "Uh uh-oh, I'm not forgiven. Maybe my baptism didn't accomplish my salvation. This person is is looking at it sort of like, oh, boy, I'm free. I don't have to do what I said I would do versus what I think should be the right reaction. Wow, I'm worried that my that my salvation has not been accomplished, that I need to to. You know that, that I'm still lost and that I need to do something to be yeah. saved. It's a, it's a weird reaction. Whether or not you agree to follow Christ and not lie, cheat, and steal, you still have an obligation to not yeah. lie, cheat, and steal, whether or not you if, said if, you were if, or not. If you were too young, then you are still lost in sin. In other words, if, if what you're saying is true, that you didn't know what you were doing, then the reality is you're still lost in sin, and you better get busy remedying that situation. Yes, that, that would be my and answer. I, we appreciate that email. Yeah. And if there's something we can do to help, and the emailer mentioned being confused about a lot of things. We'd yeah. love to help. Uh, we'd love yeah. to talk some more if there if that's a need. Let yeah, us but know. please understand what you're 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 self describing the fact that you are a lost person. You're saying your baptism wasn't effectual. Therefore, you are saying that you are a lost person and you need to do what one must do in order to be saved. Yes. All right. Uh, Daniel says one must be able to hear Romans ten seventeen, believe Hebrews eleven six, repent Acts two thirty eight, confess Romans ten verse ten, be baptized Mark sixteen verse sixteen, and then be faithful Galatians eight six eight through nine. If these can be understood and done, one can be obedient. But even among adults, commitment can be missing. Luke eight verse thirteen. If one finds that they lack commitment, the solution is to become committed. If one cannot say by faith that they have done what the Lord commands, the key is to make sure one has done so. Thank you for that, Daniel. Appreciate your comments tonight. Um, Kent says, while one is not required to know everything about the New Testament to be qualified to receive scriptural baptism, 
There are certain aspects that one must know in order to obey from the heart the gospel of Christ, Romans 6, 17, 18. One must be taught enough truth to believe the gospel, John 1, 12, to realize and know that one is in a lost condition, Romans 3, 23 and 6, 23, to repent of personal sins, Acts 17, 30, to confess faith in Christ, Romans 10, 10, and to be baptized for the remission of sins, Acts 2, 38. The case being that remission of sins is found within the confines of the universal extension of the New Testament church, Acts 2, verse 47. It is therefore conclusive that one must also understand that in the reception of remission of sins, one is added to this one church, 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13. If one, whether young or old, was not making a decision to commit their lives to Christ when they were baptized, such would not be obedience from the heart. If one did not have previous knowledge or maturity to understand such truth, one was not in a position to obey the gospel. If one has sincere doubts about the validity of their knowledge, maturity, and obedience, they need to sincerely obey from the heart the gospel of Christ now. And I would agree that with what Kent said there. Dwight's in Ames, Iowa tonight, and he says in Acts chapter 2, Peter told them to repent and be baptized for the remission of their sins. If one was uh, too young to understand this concept, they should not have been baptized in the first place. When we are baptized into Christ, we are clothed with Christ. We need to understand that we have put aside the old man of sin. If we're getting baptized without the understanding of what it does for us, then we're just getting wet. Philip told the eunuch in Acts 2.37, if you believe with all your heart, you may. As a young child, does he or she fall into this understanding? But now as an adult, one feels his baptism as a young person was not binding. You need to just make it right. I will say I know of some Christians who were baptized young and truly wanted to serve the Lord and still to this day serve him. Exactly right. It's going to be different for every individual. But you do need to know what you're doing and you do need to obey from the heart. That that certainly describes making a commitment. Finally, we've got an email from Stephen who says, I think this statement demonstrates that the Church of Christ is in the practice of baptizing infants. I think that's hyperbole, by the way. We're obviously not baptizing infants. But he goes on as a... He's he's talking about maybe baptizing... Mentally immature. Children too young to understand. He said, uh, after all, all, he says, the prefrontal cortex, talking about the development of of the brain, is not fully developed until the early 20s for boys, and that's where judgment occurs... I I also did the same thing when I was young to get people off my back. That is, other peers becoming Christians around the same age, parents asking when you're going to be baptized and so forth. I got baptized at the age of 23. I came to the understanding that my first baptism was not legitimate based on Romans 8, verse 16. Nothing in my life changed when I was younger, so I came to the realization that I need to be baptized for real. This is also different from being a newborn baby of Christ who does not have all the answers to feel that they would make an adequate decision but do want salvation. Uh, now, I'm going to say that, I mean, I understand what Stephen is saying there, but I'm going to I'm going to say that I really absolutely believe that the age of accountability is before the early 20s for all capable beings. Um I don't think you have to wait till the prefrontal cortex is fully developed necessarily to understand sin, the consequence of sin, the need for forgiveness of sin, the desire to serve the Lord and be obedient. Uh, I was talking to someone recently and they said, you know, what, so here's, here's a very common age when young people obey the gospel is 12. Uh, I'm not saying that that is the absolute um, age of accountability, but, but we, we we all have known many instances of children baptized about age 12. I think it's appropriate. I don't, I don't have a problem with that. But someone was saying, what if that same 12 year old said, I'm ready to get married. I'm going to, I'm going to marry this girl. I'm 12 years old. She's 12. We're getting married next week. We would say, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You're not mature enough to be making that decision. And so, uh, the, the question is, if, there, if you're not mature enough to make a decision to be married at age 12, are you old enough to make a decision to serve the Lord at age 12? I understand the, I understand the argument. But I think the arguments are a little bit apples and oranges. I don't think that they're exactly parallel. Uh, again, it depends. Uh, and that's why we say the age of – nobody can pinpoint the age mm-hmm. of accountability, and it's very likely different with each individual. Uh, but but I, I don't think that we're in the practice of baptizing infants. I think that's 
exaggeration for emphasis. I, I do think sometimes children are baptized too young. All right. Kevin says rebaptism is a concept that is biblical, whether young or old. For instance, there would have been John the Baptizer's followers who would have, need to be rebaptized again. And then uh, Jared uh, says, some, sounds like someone may be more worried about being withdrawn from than being eternally lost. You might put I, that I, in your I, I think that's right, too. You might put that in your file for future editions of Lister question only host questions. Stuff. You know, you hear that about there's a certain member of the family, he or she decides that they want to forsake the Lord, and the family is going to have to withdraw themselves from them per the instructions of the Scriptures. And that member of the family says, you know what? I was never really a Christian. I just became a Christian because that's what Everybody all the other boys were doing. Yeah, yeah. I've heard that several times recently. Is that legitimate? And, I, and we need to we ought, we ought to talk about that because yeah. you hear it a lot. And, and so I, I, yeah. I have questions about that. Yeah. All right. Uh, we need to get a break. And when we get back, uh, we're going to take uh, the number the three. The next question has to do uh, sort of follow up questions to a program we did a couple of weeks ago on gender roles. Uh, some follow up questions about women, women's women's roles and so forth. And this Bible study group tonight is spread far and wide. Uh, Kevin's in Tampa, Florida. Jared's in Lake Park, Georgia. Uh, Poolman76 is in Wiley, Texas. Uh, Lou is in St. Michael, Minnesota. Guest 8926 is in South Carolina. Um, and so they're spread far and wide, and we're glad that you're here. If you haven't uh, signed in and given us your location, why let, let, let us know tonight. This may be the part of the spread Bible study that you'll be a part of for a while. So let us know where you are tonight. We're going to break this, get this week's bullet point, and get your comments on the other side. Don't go anywhere. We're back right after this. Don't touch that mouse. The virtual Bible study will be back right after this. This is Greg Gwynn with this week's bullet point. The concept of no rules seems initially appealing to many people. Just think, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want, wherever you want. Man, that'd be wonderful. But wait, if I can do whatever, whenever, wherever, then so can everyone else. That means that their actions may impact on me. They might decide to take my car, burn my house, or steal my children. If there are no rules, then they can do anything, and there's no basis to stop them. Rules, we come to realize, are extremely necessary. My rights, my property, in fact, my very existence depend upon rules. Without them, civilization would come to an end. Religion is no different. Rules are clearly necessary. If allowed to do whatever we want, then there's no end to the chaos that results. The confused and divided religious world of our day is a testimony against the misguided notion that man should do as he pleases when it comes to serving God. How can we know what is right? How can we be assured that God is pleased? On what basis can we judge that certain religious deeds are proper and others are wrong? Surely these matters cannot be left to the subjective feelings of men. The I'm okay, you're okay approach is a proven failure. There must be something objective and certain that will direct us as we seek God. The objective standard that we're looking for is the inspired word of God. It is, quote, light to our path and a lamp to our feet. Psalm 119, verse 105. God's word is truth, John 17, 17. And that truth can make us free, John 8, verse 32. With the divinely delivered rule book in hand, we must respect it and comply with its regulations. This would include, quote, speaking where the Bible speaks and being silent where the Bible is silent based upon 1 Peter 4, verse 11, and demanding book, chapter, and verse for everything we do, based upon Colossians 3, verse 17. Anything less will lead to the anarchy of no rules. That's this week's bullet point. Think about it. Hi, my name is Jack. I am 8 years old, and this is Virtual Bible Study. Share your comment with the world. Call in now and be a part of the virtual Bible study. Now, back to the program. And we are sharing comments with the world tonight, even down in Texas. Timothy's down in Granbury, Texas tonight. Thank you for shining in there, Timothy. Glad that you're listening. Uh, We want to remind you this program is brought to you by the College of Church of Christ in Columbia, Tennessee. Find out more about us at our website, thevirtualbiblestudy.com. We're going to be streaming those services, Lord willing, Sunday morning, Kyle, 9.30 a.m. and 6 p.m. So if you can't be in Columbia, Tennessee. So we're doing our Bible studies and our worship services. You can get the live stream or you can get there. You can get on there and look at archives. I heard from uh, I heard from Dwight out in Iowa last week. He was uh, listening to the one of the Bible studies. Uh, so appreciate that. And if uh, you haven't checked it out, check it out at collegeview.com. Uh, I, uh, just to summarize what we were just talking about. 
I, I'm sorry, Angela, I was overlooking some, some comments that were popping up in the YouTube chat window, which, which we don't watch quite as closely as we should probably. And she said, I believe that no matter how old one is when they give their life to God, if they are now old enough to question their baptism, then they're old enough now to know the right thing to do and do it. Pretty straightforward. That's right. Okay. Thank you, Angela. All right. Thank you, Angela, for that. Okay. Um, on to question number three. This is sort of a follow-up to a, uh, a study we had maybe three weeks ago now on gender roles. Yeah. All right. We, we got sort of a three-parter here. They're, they're, they're from three different listeners. Um, can a husband – let me get this. Let's see here. Uh, this question says, can a husband demand or expect respect? Can a woman demand or expect love? Uh, our society looks down on men and elevates women to the point of ineffectiveness. A demanding husband can squash a submissive wife and a, a, in turn a strong-willed woman can overcome a humble or meek man. How is a Christian man to be an effective leader in our society that glorifies women's superiority to man? I, I don't know. I do think that gender roles have been blurred in our day and time, and we were talking about that in a re, on, on that recent uh virtual Bible study. Uh, the question, can can a man demand respect? Can a woman demand love, demand or expect? My answer to that would be yes. You can, ex- you, you, you can insist that it be so uh, based upon the fact that God commanded it to be so. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. So, and then at the end of that chapter, Ephesians 5, verse 33, let every one of you in particular so love his wife as himself, and the wife see that she reverence her husband. So can can a husband demand or expect respect demand or expect respect and can a woman demand or respect love well you can you can really do so based upon the lord's commands now that's not to say that everybody's going to do what the lord commands to do but that that is what the lord commands yeah and so you could expect that your spouse would follow the lord's commands you can't, you can't force that though i mean how could you force it you love me or you you respect me you can't force that but I, I like what Daniel said. He said a man needs to focus on loving his wife and keeping his responsibility. The wife needs to focus on respecting her husband and her responsibility. Yeah. Uh, so it is good to care and help one another wherever we may fail, but do so with love and a, a realization that each must bear their own burden, Galatians 4, verse 5. So, you know, those commands to love your wife and to uh, honor and respect your husband, those aren't conditional upon his or her behavior. Yeah, my so here's a wife who says, my husband is a total jerk, and I'm just not going to submit to him. Uh, or a man who says, my wife is just, the, is just the most unloving person that anyone ever knew, therefore I am not going if to love her. If you knew how she treated me, you wouldn't be able to love her either. Yeah. No, God said love. So, so as a husband, your responsibility to your wife is independent of her conduct. Yeah. And as a wife, your responsibility to, to your husband is independ- independent of his conduct. You've got to do what God told you to do. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, my boss on the job is he's just not paying me enough. I just don't feel like I'm getting fair compensation for my work. I'm going to start taking a little money under the table. I'm going to start embezzling a little because I think it's owed me. No, you can't do that. In other words... So if my boss is unreasonable, that doesn't justify me to sin. The same thing would be true in the husband-wife relationship. Yeah, uh, or God, if God knew how hard it was to live faithful in this wicked world, if God knew how much persecution I was going to have to go through, he wouldn't expect me to live like, no, God said, be faithful unto death. Yeah. So we're responsible for doing what we're supposed to do regardless of how other people respond. Kyle, thoughts on that? Well, yeah, it's, I mean, if we, <clears throat> we can't, whenever someone does us wrong, we can't just, you know, knee-jerk reaction, just do them wrong. We have to, yeah, yeah, 
We have to live our own lives and live the way God wants us to. So. Yeah. In other words, just because you, just because I'm a, a bad person doesn't excuse you to do something because, well, look at Greg. Look what a bad person he is. Therefore, I'm going to do what I there's, there's never an excuse like that. Angela submitted First Peter chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, which may be along the lines of the idea that we're talking about someone not living like they should. Likewise, you wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that if any obey not the word, they may also without the word be won by the conversation of the wives while they behold your chaste conversation coupled with fear. So there's here's a husband who's not what he should be, plain and simple. He's not obeying the word. Now, the implications of that to the marriage relation are hard to determine here, but one way or the other, he's not submitting to the Lord. What's she supposed to do? Be in subjection? Yeah. So um, uh, so the husband and the wife are both responsible for living like they should towards their spouse, regardless of the other. Jared says the husband-wife uh, would have to have to do so lovingly and respectfully. Uh, being demanding would fail, likely cause us to fail to fulfill our role. Yeah. The demanding part maybe is what Jared is focusing on there, and he may be that may be a good point to stress. In other words, I want my wife to submit to me, but I don't get that by demanding it. I get that by loving her, like the passage also says. And I've heard preachers say, and I think it's a really good observation, it will be easy for a wife to submit to a husband who loves her like he's supposed to love her. And so when so, so we can make it easy on one another by Following God's instructions for marriage. Yep. We've got to move quick uh, well, here, Jacob. Okay, Kent says, the love required by God in the marriage relationship between husbands is that of agape love. Such is not an emotion or feeling. Such is an attitude of sacrifice where we place the interest of others before our own. In understanding the nature of this form of love, uh, such implies respect. The case being that such is a divine requirement of God, Ephesians 5:22 and 23, or 5:22 through 33, husbands and wives have the right to both expect love and res- and respect in addition to providing it. All right? All right. And then Dwight says a husband or wife can demand love, respect and love, but they won't. that won't get them the true respect and love they deserve. In Ephesians 5, 25, 2 and 25, Paul tells wives and husbands how to be towards each other. This is not an option, but a God-inspired command. We should be willing to respect and love each other without being told, but God is just making it quite clear to us here how we are to be, a, be to each other. Paul states in verses 28 and 29, just how deep that love should go, just as Christ loves the church. So thanks for that, Dwight. All right. And then uh, Daniel. We didn't cover Daniel. We did. I got him. Oh, you already got him. Okay. All right. All right. So so that was the first part of question three. We're talking about gender roles. The second part was, can a wife work outside the home? Let's just read our, I think our listeners have got this pinned down. I I like Kent's answer. Uh, He says, May a wife work outside the home? A qualified yes. She may do so just as long as she can fulfill her God-given obligations as both a wife and mother. Titus, by the way, we might throw this verse in. This is the verse that you got to take into consideration is Titus 2, uh, beginning verse 4. The older women teach the younger women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. So they are required to be keepers at home. And my understanding of that expression uh, is along the lines of a a manager or supervisor of the home. They are in charge of the home front. If they take a job outside the home, it doesn't release them from the obligation to be a keeper at home. And and so I've always said if you take a job outside the home, that's your second job. Your first job is at home, and you can't forsake the first job to benefit the second. So uh, it's it's a tough road to hoe, but uh I don't think that I don't think the expression is a prohibition on being outside the home. If you try to take it literally, and I know some brethren who do, then the wife could never go outside the confines of the four walls of her house. I don't think that's what it's saying. She has a job to do. She's a she's a household manager. She's got to make sure that the household is running well. And I can tell you, sometimes women who take a job outside the, uh, of the home fail miserably in that. And, and so they're forsaking their number one God-given responsibility for something else. You've got to be careful about that. But I don't think you can say blanket condemnation on women working outside the home. No, and I say there are certain circumstances where a woman would have to work outside the home. She'd be wrong not to, for instance, if the husband is unable uh, to uh, work due to some illness. 
would you not agree that a woman would have a responsibility to help provide for her own in any way that she could? Uh, and so uh, I think there'd be certain circumstances where it would be imperative on a woman uh, to work outside the home. But as you mentioned, her first responsibility is to be that homemaker. Yeah. Um, and uh, Daniel says, Proverbs chapter 31 and Acts 16, 14. Six, uh, so Proverbs 31, the virtuous woman, she did obviously some things outside of the home. Yep. We don't have time to read that text. But the, the virtuous woman of, of Proverbs 31 clearly did some things outside of the home. Lydia in Acts 16, verse 14, was a seller of purple from Thyatira, you remember? Yep. Uh, so she had a business interest. He says, these may be examples of such. The wife and husband must nev- not ever neglect their duties to the home, Titus 2, verse 5. Which I just read. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Now, he, re- he puts husbands in that as well. And this this consideration is not limited to just women. Husbands need to have the same consideration. Husbands need to, as they work outside the home, they need to, they need to regulate that activity with their responsibilities at home as well. There are husbands who neglect their responsibilities because at home. Of working outside because home. of working outside. And so men and women alike need to dis- determine that what their priorities are and their priorities may not be elaborate vacations. They may not be nice houses, new cars, plenty of, Good children have been raised in shacks, and it may be that we decide that we're going to live in a shack so that we have more time yeah. with our family. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Uh, uh, hey, can I say one other thing? Are you on the soapbox here? Well, I would say it may be imperative that a woman work outside the home. We mentioned if she needs to provide for her family. It may be imperative that a woman work outside the home if she doesn't have enough at home to keep her from being idle. First Timothy 5. Verse 13 warns about women who learn to be idle. And so it may be a point where... That's another know, concern altogether. But. Yeah, but she may, need to, she may need to find something to keep her busy, some type of activity that keeps her from being but, idle. And maybe not necessarily employment outside the home. Maybe it's serving others outside the but, home. But that's outside the home. So yeah. she's working yeah. outside the home. But yeah. yeah, so okay. All right. Okay. Uh, I've got another Iowa listener, guest 826. Thanks, 826. Iowa. So we're we're well represented in Iowa tonight. Okay. All right. Got to go quickly. The uh, what time? Oh man. The last Are question. We, gonna have, we got two more questions. Are we going to yeah. have to roll over here? I'm afraid we're going may have to roll this we over. We may have tonight. to put a call out for some more questions. You want to get a break? or You want to just roll through it? Here? Uh, let's let's grab the last break and then and then we'll see how far we can get. All right. Here. We're going to go quick after this. Don't go anywhere. They're back right after these messages. Did you hear what they just said? Call in during this break and let everyone know what you think. The virtual Bible study continues after this announcement. Warning, this is to make you aware of a disorder plaguing American and the metro area, BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Many people are not getting enough Bible in their daily lives. Are you? Answer the following questions to see if you might be suffering from BDD. Do you answer spiritual questions by saying, I think, instead of the Bible says? Do you depend on religious authors and pastors to tell you what to believe? When Benny Hinn says, this is your day for a miracle, do you believe him? If you answered yes to any of these questions, then you might be suffering from BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. The College View Church of Christ is dedicated to fighting BDD by teaching the Bible. We focus on Christ by following his word. Don't succumb to BDD, Bible Deficit Disorder. Fight it by joining us for Bible study on Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. As long as there is breath in your body, it is not too late to fight Bible Deficit Disorder. We'll see you this Sunday at the College View Church of Christ. We're tracking the trends on the virtual Bible study. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than two or three of the Apostles. Sixty percent of Americans can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. Twelve percent of adults believe that Joan of Arc was Noah's wife. Fifty percent of high school seniors think that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. A considerable number of survey respondents thought that the Sermon on the Mount was preached by Billy Graham. That information is via albertmoller.com. The Word of God says in Hosea chapter 4, verse 6, My people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. 
And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by him. Colossians 3:17. Now, back to the program. We're back on the program. Go to the top of the hour. We're going fast. Two more questions if we can get them in. Well, we still got one question oh, we still to do. deal with women and women's roles, and I think it's an important one. This one could take the rest of the hour. Yeah. Relative to 1 Corinthians 14, 34 and 35, which requires women to keep silence in the church, are there different types of assemblies where different rules apply? For instance, is a Sunday morning Bible class different than the Sunday morning worship assembly? Can a woman speak in class but not in the worship assembly? All right, that's a tough question, and it's one that's been batted around quite a bit, and some people have some real strong opinions about that. I think some people have some conscience about that. Uh, and obviously, we always encourage people, you've got to be true to your conscience. Uh, the, the verses under question, 1 Corinthians fourteen thirty four. let your women keep silence in the churches, for it's not permitted to them to speak, but they're commanded to be under obedience, as also saith the law. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is a shame for women to speak in the church. Now, first observation, remember where it says the, that they are to keep silence in the church, that's not permitted them to speak, but to command to be under obedience. That's a not but construction common in the scriptures. It's not a total pro- prohibition on the first thing. It's an emphasis on the second. We know women are not obligated to be absolutely silent in the church because we know that they sing in the church. We know they're commanded to sing. We know that a mother may lean over and whisper to a misbehaving child, I'm going to I'm going to take you out and and warm your britches if you don't sit there and be quiet. Well, that's not being silent, you know. We, we would expect her to keep her children disciplined in the assembly. She may have to whisper a, a warning to them if if they're misbehaving. And so the, the the prohibition here is on speaking in such a way as to not be in obedience or under submit um, under subjection to the men. Now, I do think that there are different. Having said that, I do think that there are different kinds of assemblies. What if three couples got together at your home, Jacob, for a Bible study? So here's here's a group of Christians. This is this is a group meeting of some Christians. Can the women engage in that Bible study discussion? Can they read scripture? Uh, can they ask and answer questions in in a, a group study like that? We I think everybody everybody I know would say yes. Well, what's the difference between that and when we're in the worship assembly? I think Paul identified the worship assembly when he's telling women to be silent. The The whole context of this discussion goes way back to chapter 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20. He says, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper for an eating. Everyone take it before other is own and one is hungry and another. In other words, he said, when you come together, you all are violating the Lord's Supper, violating the observance of the Lord's Supper. But he's identifying an assembly where the church has come together for that purpose. Later in chapter 14, just before the verses in question, at verse 23, he says, if the whole church be come together in one place. And so I do think he's talking about a worship assembly, and especially, particularly, the worship assembly where we come together to observe the Lord's Supper and it is in that context that I think the prohibition on women speaking is issued. That being the case, I don't think that that when we have a group together, be it in the church building or someplace else, and we're having a Bible study, that it is the same kind of assembling that Paul had under consideration in 1 Corinthians chapters 11 through 14. That context runs all the way through there. I don't think it's the same kind of assembly. I do think there are different kinds of assemblies. Okay. All right. Uh, Kent says, regarding 1 Corinthians 14, 34, and 35, I see no distinction between the assembly where the Lord's Supper is observed in chapter 11 and the assembly where the temporary miraculous gifts <clears throat> were exercised in chapter 14. The silence of women in 14, 34, and 35 is particularly speaking with reference to <coughs> to the total silence where no sound is uttered. Such had to do with the exercise of miraculous gifts and addressing the assembly insofar as inspired teaching or even asking questions. However, in Ephesians 5.19, 
Women are authorized to sing in the assembly, which is a type of speaking. And noting 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 15, women are not to teach over nor exercise authority over men in any way. Bible classes are not assemblies. They are designed for participation by all. Just as long as a woman does not speak in such a way as to teach over men or exercise authority over men, she does not violate the principle under consideration. Whereas the term silence, not making a sound, is used in 1 Corinthians 14, the term silence in 1 Timothy 2 does not mean muteness, but rather that of quietness as set forth in the authorized uh, standard version, 1901 speaking. American standard version. Sorry, American standard. Uh, speaking with reference to the low to low key speaking in a non-authoritative way, yeah. authoritative way. Uh, yeah, I, I would I, I'll have to, to look at that some more. But my first reaction is that I'm, I'm not in total agreement with Kent on the fact that First Corinthians 14, 34 and 35 is talking about exclusively the exercise of spiritual gifts, although I do fully agree with him that that is the, in the context. Uh, but uh, uh, I, I think that the verse 34, the not but construction, means that it's not talking about a, a complete utter silence, uh, but rather it's commanding a silence of the type that shows she's in subjection to the men. Dwight says women have a responsibility to sing just as men to usurp authority is wrong. Now, to your your point, though, what about the, the, the prohibition against asking questions? Uh, well, I, I, you can ask a question in such a way as to not be in subjection. For instance, and I've had this happen before, a woman speaks up in Bible class to the male teacher. Says, Do you mean to tell me that you think that? It's wrong to drink alcohol? Well, the way she asked that question, she's not in subjection. And so the, even the asking of a question can be such as to be not in submission to the men. Okay. Uh, Lou said, would doing this lesson reading in the service by a woman violate the rule that a woman should not have authority over a man? So could, could a woman, for instance, read scripture in the assembly? Um, you know, I, I, it's a tough question. I, I I w- my my judgment is that she should not, because you you open the door and what always happens is that it's taken a lot farther than what you intended. Uh, can a woman say amen to a prayer in the assembly? Well, I, I would uh, maybe it would be similar to the same thing that Lou is asking. My my judgment is that she should not verbally amen the prayer because, again, you set a precedent and others will take it way farther than you intended it to go. I don't know that I think that reading just reading a verse of Scripture or saying amen audibly in a worship assembly would necessarily be a violation of the prohibition, but it sets a precedent that, that men will take. And now where have we gone with that? Where, so it started with that, that way a while back, and now, look, we've got women preachers and everything else. Timothy says that would be leading worship if she were to do that. So uh, Possibly. I mean, you don't know the exact scenario, but not, I, I wouldn't say maybe not necessarily so, but I think it would set a precedent that you don't want to follow. Timothy may be right that, you know, that that puts her in a leading an act of leading the worship, which we wouldn't want her to do. Okay. All right. Um, we are about out of time. We're, We're going to have no use, to there's no use put a hold we, on the next two questions. we got two questions we'll hold over. We'll see okay. if we can patch together challenge. some other questions. Let's, with, we let's may issue do this a again. challenge to our listeners. Yeah. Can you, can you give us enough questions between now and next Thursday morning that we could have another one of these programs next week yeah they're good i mean these these kind of these are practical questions i don't none of these were just hypothetical questions here tonight right these were all practical questions and i I, according you know we got a lot of comments in the chat room people were interested in these so if you've got a question hey and it doesn't have to be a question that you don't know the answer to kyle you got you, you know if you want to throw a question out there that you think you know the answer to already but you think it would be good to have discussed Send it in, Kyle. Yeah. Kyle, you haven't submitted a question in a long time. What are you doing back there? Just playing with cameras, huh? That's it. All, All right. Uh, <laughs> Thanks for being so, here. Yeah, we, if we're going to, and we will hold over the, we will get to these other questions at some point. 
Uh, hopefully next week if we get if we get some additional. I've got a few more questions in the stack of stuff. If we can put together enough questions to fill an hour worth of time, we'll do it again next week. Okay. Thanks for your time tonight, Dad. Thanks, Jay. Thank you for being here on the uh, on the program tonight. We hope you benefited from our study and discussion from God's Word. Hope you make plans to be back here this time next week for another edition of the Virtual Bible Study. In the meantime, we encourage you to put God first in your life. Study His inspired Word of the Bible and live by it every day. You'll never regret it. Thanks for listening to the Virtual Bible Study, brought to you by the College View Church of Christ. The College View Church of Christ meets at 1618 Hampshire Pike in Columbia, Tennessee. If you are in the Columbia, Tennessee area, we encourage you to worship with the College View Church of Christ on Sunday mornings at 930 and on Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock. The College View Church of Christ also welcomes you to attend their Wednesday night Bible studies at 7 o'clock. If you have any questions about something that was said on tonight's broadcast or would like more information about the College College View Church of Christ, please call 931-381-4567. That number again, 931-381-4567. Or for more information on the internet, visit collegeview.com. Be sure to tune into the virtual Bible study this time next Thursday for another informative study of God's Word.